Good morning, once again. It's good to be here with all of you. I will be uh, sharing out of the book of Philippians this morning, starting in chapter 1. And it is an honor to be able to bring God's Word this morning. I decided to preach from Philippians for a few reasons. I led a Bible study uh, in the past of the book of Philippians, so I had done a lot of the groundwork already, I guess, as far as uh, uh, preparing for for this book or for this letter. And second, because as we most of us know, the book of Philippians is often referred to as the book of joy in the Bible, and it's... Uh, um, I guess if I'm honest, I would say that would probably have been, has been a struggle for, for me at times for sure. And so it has served me well even just to prepare for this message this morning to, uh, to look at the subject of joy in the Lord and to study and to prepare for this message. Typically we would give uh, a fair bit of introduction as we, when we start a new book of the Bible. Um, and I will not spend any time in the opening here, as far as an introduction goes, because as I go through the first 11 verses, I think we will um, get to know most of the history of, of Paul as he's in um, his relationship to the Philippian church and how it got, uh, how the church came to be, and also uh, how and when he wrote this letter. So we will cover most of those details later. So with that, um, we want to uh, want to look at three things in this um, portion, uh, in the first 11 verses. Um, let's just read the first 11 verses, and then we'll go from there. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And uh, so, yeah, I want to look at, at three things here. Um, First of all, we want to look at Paul's introduction of himself and Timothy as servants. Um, Paul goes from being a servant of men to a servant of Christ. Um, second thing we want to look at is the joy of the gospel, the joy that Paul expresses um, in his salvation to the Philippian church. And the third thing we want to look at is who are the saints that he mentions in verse 2. He's writing to the saints, and uh, so I'm, we want to look at who the saints are that Paul is writing to. And so, servant of men to servant of Christ. Paul is the author of this letter, and he introduces himself and Timothy here as servants of Jesus Christ. So as a servant of someone, we, 
we would dedicate possibly our time to serve that person or, or a particular group of people. Maybe Paul says here that he and Timothy are servants of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 5, Paul says this of himself. He says, I was, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul was a devout Jew. He was dedicated to the law and to the Jewish customs. Um, they were keepers of the law, and they based their hope of, and their, of eternal life with God and their ability to keep the law. And uh, Paul was not only a, a Jew, he was also a Pharisee. In Acts 23, verse 6, Paul says, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. And so Paul was uh, a servant of the high priest, and he was delivering letters to synagogues. This is found in Acts chapter 9. Um, and he was looking along the way for anyone who belonged to the way or belonged to Jesus Christ. And he was arresting them and he was bringing them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. And ultimately we can safely assume, I think, that a lot of those people would have been in danger of, of a, a death by stoning or a, some other way just simply for believing in Christ. And that is based on um, as it's like as it's written in Acts chapter seven, you can read that account for yourself, and also in Acts twenty-two, and we will read Acts twenty-two, a short portion here. And Paul is telling his story to the uh, to the crowd of people. This was shortly after he was arrested, um, and the, that was the arrest that ultimately led him to a Roman prison, from where he is writing this letter. And so, before they took him inside, he he turned around and he addressed the crowd. Um, as in Acts 22, and he, in verse 17 it says, And when I had returned to Jerusalem, he's telling this to the crowd, I was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance, and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quick, quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I am imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so for Paul um, to call himself a servant of Jesus Christ, it testifies to God's grace in his life. One commentator said Paul had been an arrogant, self-righteous persecutor of the church. And now Paul himself, he's calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And uh, assuming, I assume we all know the story about how Paul came to the road, uh, came to Christ on the road to Damascus. We can read that account in Acts chapter 9. And, but it tells us that he was blinded by a bright light. Um, Jesus began to speak with him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul remained blind for three days. His physical sight was lost for three days until Ananias came um, by God's leading and uh, laid his hands on him. And Paul, regaining his sight, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he rose and he was baptized. And so it is, I find that it's important to note that Paul was not searching for God. Um, he was doing the opposite, actually. He was blind to the truth of the Scriptures. 
and that as a, as a Pharisee, uh, he would have been um, accustomed to. He would have known well the Scriptures. And uh, God took his eyesight away, but for the first time, Paul could see, and he could see the truth. In Acts 9, verse 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And so from going to arresting people and um, punishing them just simply for believing in, in Jesus Christ, he proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. He went from being a persecutor of the church to those who believed in Jesus and to proclaiming. He did not just do it under his breath. He did it openly and proudly and um, boldly. And he proclaimed it uh, in the synagogues where the religious leaders would be, those who knew him from before and where he knew he would receive serious opposition for his newfound faith. And so the point that we're trying to get at here, that I'm trying to make here, is that Paul went from being a servant to a judi the judicial law system to a servant of Jesus Christ, a manservant to a God-servant. He went from religion to Christian. Paul went from being an angry person defending the legal system of the Jewish religion to being a joy-filled person in dire circumstances. And Paul's source of joy is in the fact that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. He was what we would willingly call a saint. And I'm sure we can ask almost anyone um, in our community who the Apostle Paul was, and most people in in our community would agree that he would be a saint. We would, we would ask people if, if you would agree that Paul is a saint. I think most people would agree. Um, after all, he wrote a number of books in the New Testament. He was chosen by God to do a great work. Um, he was to bring the gospel to the world. And he was a missionary. A tra he was traveling through the land, planting churches wherever he went. Uh, a man of God. And anyone who knows anything about the Bible would agree with that. But before that, before he was a saint, Paul rejected God. He was a persecutor of the Christians. Before he was a believer, he was in all reality a hater of the gospel. Matthew 23, verse 27 says this of scribes and Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones, and all uncleanliness. And so this is who Paul was. He was what Jesus described as a whitewashed tomb. He looked good on the outside. He was well taken care of, but in the inside he was full of dead man's bones. And God took this man, who was a wretch of a man named Saul, and he changed his life forever. He even changed his name. There was nothing the same for Paul when God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. Paul went from dead man's bones in a whitewashed tomb to being alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, that behold, the new has come. And so Paul was a saint because God chose Paul and he opened his eyes so that he could see. Not a literal seeing, but a spiritual sight a servant of the high priest to a servant of Christ Jesus. And we can 
Maybe even imagine Paul being a, um, a fine-dressed man as a servant of the high priest. In those days, he might have been, you know, he would have been in the higher rankings of the people. Um, he might have possibly even had people who did his dirty work for him. Uh, we read earlier uh, in Acts 9 when Stephen was stoned or, and Paul was there. We, we're not sure um, if that means he was the one that ordered the killing of Stephen. Um, and they were simply his servants doing his work. Or if it just means that he was there. Well, we know he was there witnessing it. And he was in the front lines. But in Acts 8 verse, verse 1, it says Saul approved of it. He approved of the execution of Stephen. And so either way, he would have been um, a higher ranked, uh, well taken care of man, I'm sure. But that changed when he became a believer. Uh, we, we know Paul suffered tremendously for his faith. And he says this of himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 27. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And so Paul's whitewashed tomb that was full of dead man's bones is more than likely looking like a dead man walking. And yet, instead of dead bones inside, he was full of life and he was full of joy. The joy he has is not because he now serves Christ, but because Christ made him a servant of Christ. And that leads me to the next point, and that is the joy of the gospel. How can Paul go from such severe hardships, <clears throat> hardships to being a person of this level of joy. And let's read uh, Philippians just 3 to 11 again. And Paul says, and just we can almost hear it the way he writes this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so we know Paul loved the Philippian church. This church had a special place um, in his heart. And this church came into being because the Spirit of Jesus directed Paul to Philippi in a dream. And so I was going to read this portion of Scripture um, but we will, I will just give you a brief overview, actually, of, of what it says there. Um, this will help us to understand Paul, Paul's love for this church in Philippi. And it is found in Acts chapter 16, 
um, Paul was traveling through um, Phryg- Phryg- Phrygia and Galatia. Haven't been for, he had, and, but the Holy Spirit forbid him from going on to um, Asia. And so, in a dream, the Holy Spirit, um, in a vision, appeared to Paul at night, and he saw a man from Macedonia calling him to come and help us. And so Paul and Silas immediately left there, and they traveled um, to Macedonia, um, to Taurus, and ultimately they came to Philippi, uh, which was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. And on the Sabbath day, they went out to the gate at the riverside where there was people gathering to pray, and they found some women there who were praying. Uh, One woman in particular, her name was Lydia, And the Lord opened, according to verse 17, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And ultimately, this led to her and her household being baptized, and Paul stayed in in their house with them. And as they continued serving there, they were um, going back and forth to the place of prayer. There was a young girl, uh, had a spirit of divination, divination, and brought... Um, she was a fortune teller, and she brought lots of money to her owners by doing that. And she was um, heckling Paul. Um, and Paul, being annoyed with that, he ultimately he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He drove that spirit of divination out of that girl, and she no longer um, was able to uh, provide money for her masters, and they got upset. And that ultimately led to him being arrested there. Um, they, the crowd joined those people and they attacked him. They beat them with rods and they had inflicted many blows upon them. Verse 23, they threw them into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And as we know that Paul and Silas started singing hymns at midnight, praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and an earthquake came, broke the gates open, and they were, in a sense, free to go. But the jailer woke up and he was about to commit suicide because he um, was afraid that he would die anyway because the prisoners had escaped and he hadn't done his job. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself for we are all here. And that ultimately led to the Philippian jailer asking, What must I do to be saved? And he too became a believer. And they came to his house, and um, he and his household were baptized as well. And so, just a, a recap there, many things happened in the city of Philippi, and many people um, would have come to Christ there, and Paul had um, many fond memories of them there. And they were supporters of him. We read they often uh, cared for his needs as well, and they cared for him as much as he cared for them. He saw God do many miracles among the people there, and he witnessed many come to saving faith in Jesus. But because of his relationships there, because of what we even we read, um, we might be tempted to believe that Paul's joy, his source of joy was the people there, his friends, his people, the people in Philippi, and their love for him. In Philippians 4.15, he says, 
When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And so we just, again, see many times over his special connection that he had with the Philippian church. But we, I want to be very clear about the one thing here, and that is that Paul's joy was in Christ. Paul's joy isn't in the people. It isn't in his friends and his loved ones. His source of joy is in the grace and the peace that he receives from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as he mentions in verse 2. He says, The grace and peace that he wishes on them, his friends, that he has. John MacArthur's commentary in the book of Philippians says, True joy is an unwavering constant in a spirit-filled life. An unwavering constant in a spirit-filled life. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we know the Holy Spirit is a source of joy. John MacArthur continues, True joy is not a transient emotional feeling that comes and goes depending on circumstances. Because Paul was constantly near to God, he was constantly joyful. He experienced an unexpressible peace and contentment provided by the Holy Spirit deep within his heart and soul because he had a conscience that was clear of offense against God. End quote. Paul was experiencing the peace of God. And he writes uh, in Philippians 4 again, he says, four verse from starting in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that passes, surpasses all understanding. In verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it is, it is through Christ and Christ alone that Paul can endure situ- the situation he is in. And he has learned to be content and to be joy-filled no matter what he is doing or what is going on around him. His joy is based on his salvation and not on his circumstances. But the church in Philippi has a special place in Paul's heart. And it shows as we read through the letter, we can see um, they are dearly loved ones to him. He wrote other letters as well. Um, He wrote to other churches, but not another one with so much joy-centered or gratitude toward the believers there. He usually writes with strong warning about false doctrine, or even strong rebuke for being easily swayed by false teachers and correction for false beliefs. But the Philippian church was faithful to the gospel. The fruit that came from this church was one that blessed the heart of Paul. They brought him gifts. They supplied him with financial aid. According to 1 verse 5, they were in partnership with him in the gospel. They were partakers with him in grace, both in the imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, verse 7. But then in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul gives us the real reason for his joy in them. And so Philippians 4, verse 15 
Starting in 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received Ephroditus, the gifts from Ephroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in the middle, there was verse 17. I don't know if you caught it, but it says, Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Increases your credit. Paul's joy was overflowing because of the fruit that he was seeing in this church. He was seeing spiritual growth in the church, and that added to his joy that he had in salvation. There is no greater joy for a believer to have a clear conscience in the offense of God, and then second, to see others walking in holiness and growing in their faith as well and becoming more like Christ. And that is what brought extra joy to Paul. As a pastor or a shepherd um, would take great joy in seeing spiritual growth of his church or his congregation, that's what it did to Paul. It just added to his joy. In fact, in Philippians 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So his joy was in the Lord and in being a servant of Christ without offense. That's where his source of joy was. And it was only completed when he witnessed his church, the Philippian church, growing and, and seeing the fruit of, of their servanthood to Christ growing. And it just made everything worth it for Paul. All of his trials and hardships were worth it when he was able to see the fruit of his, of his labors. He says in, in 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that is the main pur- purpose of any servant of Christ, and that is to advance the gospel. And Paul, um, as a servant of Christ, and his joys in the fact that he is a servant of Christ, and his joy is only increased because he is seeing others walk alongside of him. And when others become saints, as he writes in verse 2, where he said, grace to you and peace. No, in verse 1, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And that leads me to the last point, and that is, who are these saints? Who are who qualifies to be a saint? Um, who is Paul talking to? And for this, we will go back to verse 1 there. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so Paul says to all the saints, um, who are the saints he's writing to? Are they just the elders of the church? He mentions the overseers and the deacons separately here, so we must, uh, he can't be just talking about the elders of the church here. So the saints then are the body of the church. They are the believers there. We have often a preconceived view of who a saint is. We so easily think of a saint as someone like Paul someone who may have died for their faith or who devoted their life to the ministry, 
a lifelong service to the church or a mission field. We sometimes hear of the saints of old or the saints in the Bible times, and they are saints for sure. But we also know Paul was not writing to people who were already dead. He was writing to people who were still alive, people who would read this letter. And so we understand that the Philippian church was a healthy church. Like I mentioned earlier, he didn't, he didn't write to them to, to rebuke them, um, but he to encourage them. And so they were a healthy church. And he doesn't address specific issues in the church as he did some other churches, like the Galatian church or the Corinthian church. But we know they were not perfect. He did remind them of a few things. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing as a believer. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Uida and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. So there was obviously some discrepancies there. In verse 6, he says, I do not, and do not be anxious about anything. And so he had to remind them of a few things. But overall, he did not write to them to correct doctrinal error. In the Roman Catholic system, a saint is, is a revered, revered person who, revered persons who are officially canonized after death because they have met certain requirements. And so to canonize someone, in the Catholic system, it means to um, declare a deceased person um, a recognized saint. They, they canonize them. And so we know Paul is not talking about people who have passed away. So we know it's not that, but to people who are reading and hearing his letter. And so the question then is, what makes them saints? And we will look back at Acts 9.13 um, one more time here. It says, the Lord has asked, the Lord has, it doesn't say, it, the Lord has just asked Ananias to go and pray um, for Saul. He's, he tells Ananias, go to a street called Straight, and there's a man who has lost his vision, and he wants him to go pray for him. And then this is what Ananias says in verse 13. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, and Ananias calls them saints in Acts 9.13. In Acts 9, verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down and also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And so we have two cases here again where we see Christians are referred to as saints. And in addition to these references, Paul calls the believer saints in Ephesians 1.1 and Colossians 1.2. And then one more reference that I want to read, I want us to turn, if you have, if you want to, to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 4. And Paul, um, he addresses them as brothers here. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh and infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, and you not of the flesh, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And so we see here the Corinthian church um, is far from perfect. In fact, um, they are in need of some serious correction from Paul. And at best, 
they are babes in Christ. They are young in the faith. But let's just go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. And this is where Paul starts his letter to that church. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who are in a place, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the believers who are babes in Christ are referred to as saints. People still struggle. People who are struggling and many times fail to live up to the standards that we would, in our minds, often set for what a saint would look like. And so we understand that being a saint does not require uh, a level of spiritual maturity. It comes with simply being a believer in Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. That may not all, they may not have all been saints at the Corinthian church. There might have been some that weren't, but the point is not that, the point is that it doesn't require a certain spiritual level to be called a saint. A saint is a believer in Christ, even if only a babe in Christ. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then let's skip down to verse 22. In Romans 4, he says, That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it is counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Righteousness was counted to Abraham because of his faith in God, not because his ability to keep the law, but because of his faith in God. And he believed in the promise of God. And because of God's, and because of that, God's righteousness was imputed to him. Not because of the law. If it was according to the law, we would all be without hope. But the Bible goes further than just saying that to Abraham. It says, it is counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. That promise goes beyond Abraham. It goes to every single person. God raised Jesus and God raised us to life when we came to the faith. Those of us who believe and have faith in him. We were whitewashed tombs. We had dead man's bones. We are so far from perfect, so far from what we even ourselves would consider to be saint quality. But yet God's word says, in the eyes of God, we are called saints. Not because of what we are doing or going to do, but simply because he has raised us to life in him. Because our ability to live for God relies solely on the fact that he has raised us from the dead. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Ephesians 2 verse 4 
to 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dead man's bones in a whitewashed tomb. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John MacArthur writes, In Paul's letters, the phrase, In Christ Jesus, occurs 50 times, In Christ, 29 times, In the Lord, 45 times. Being in Christ Jesus, and therefore acceptable to God, is the believer's supreme source of joy. That is the only way we can be acceptable to God, and that is to be in Christ Jesus. And that is our source of joy. That is to be our source of joy. That is the only source of joy we can have. And we must rely on His promises for that. If we rely on anything beyond that, our joy is based on nothing that be worth standing on. Our, our, our joy has to be in the fact that Christ saved us. That is our supreme source of joy. Colossians 1, 21-23 says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a wonderful promise we have. We can truly have joy in the work of Christ in our lives. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, then we must also believe in his promises to complete our salvation on the day of judgment. We have God's word, and he will see it through. Our joy as believers is in the fact that we are saved and it has nothing to do with the circumstances around us. Paul, if anyone, would have had reason to sorrow over his life. Beatings and whippings and being in prison, all because he believed. All because he did faithfully what we are all called to do, and that is to share the gospel with the world. But Paul would sing hymns in prison, and he would worship the Lord, the Lord wherever and whenever. And he was wherever he was because of his joy, which was in his salvation. His joy was in the fact that he was saved by Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, um, he, Paul says, he realized that it was a gift of God, from God, and not of his own doing. And as a result of that, he was indeed living without offense toward God because he understood what his source of joy needed to be. It was beyond his own ability, it was based in the fact that God saved him. And brothers and sisters, that must be our source of joy. May our inheritance into the kingdom of God motivate us to sing hymns and to praise God as Paul and Silas did in prison at midnight. May it encourage us, no matter what is going on around us, to have joy in the Lord. May it motivate us to live our lives without offense towards God. Isn't that the only thing that could rob our source of joy of being a believer? 
if we're living in offense towards God, that will rob us of our joy. And so we must um, focus and believe where our joy is. It is an incredible promise, and God has saved us from an endless eternity without Him to an eternity with Him as one of His own. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we just, we thank you, God, for salvation. We thank you for saving us, Lord. And we pray that that truth would just sink so deep into our hearts, God, that it would just motivate us to go and share that with the world. Lord, to call others and to bring others to you and and that you would, through that, save more people and God, we understand that that is, that just adds to our joy to see others being able to experience the true source of joy that, that we claim to have. And may that light shine in us. May that motivate us. Help us to just think about that promise and not give up and to run the race with endurance, Lord, according to your will. We just ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.